from the Midwest City Free Methodist Church. The church would probably prefer overall to not get into that mix just for the sake of that. The church doesn't speak to it because it's divisive. The church speaks to it because it's important, because it's vital, because of what's at stake, and because the church is called to, for the good of all people, to rescue the perishing. I showed you one writer last week who was not at all pro-life, by the way, but who was honest enough to see this clearly and to admit this plainly. And I thought that was fairly powerful. But today I want to have a look at what are some of the reasons, because church-going people can sometimes look at a thing like this, and they could look across all the people who are marching, and they could listen to and read all the stuff, and they could think to themselves, you know, I don't get this. Why, why does this happen so much? Why, why is abortion such a big thing? Why, why are so many of them taking place all the time? Because it just seems to me, when I look at this, Looks obvious to me. What, what, so what are the reasons? What makes it happen? Why are so many of them happening? We sometimes hear that it's happening because, um, well, you know, there's there are health concerns, and sometimes someone's could be a woman and her life is at stake. And maybe that's it. Okay, It'd kind of make you feel better if you thought that's what it's about. But of course, that's not really what it's about. So what are the reasons? So we're gonna we're gonna look at some of those reasons here in a little bit, and and I'll. I'll, I'll show you four of them in a minute, and then we'll some of them I won't get to this week. We'll go one more week at it. However, even before that, there's another question that people may ask that I think we have to look at, which is not just what are the reasons, but what is it that makes people, so many people not see this the way we see this? It looks like it's a moral no-brainer, but... What is it? What is it about us? And here we get we get down to some doctrine. Do your beliefs inform everything? Do they inform the way you see all the different issues? They should. And incidentally, um, here's another plug. So for uh, so we we have begun now for the Wednesday night Bible study that happens in here. We started a new series, a new topic last week going through some really good material that's on the doctrine of man, as it were, or what you would call a Christian anthropology. And so we'll continue doing that. sort of takes a, a pretty detailed examination of how we understand what am I? What are you people? What are, what are we as human beings? And that issue is relevant to this question of what is it that, why do so many people not see what appears to me and appears to you to be pretty plain? And all those marchers, they all seem to see something fairly obvious, but why doesn't everyone see it that way? And so I take you to a place we've gone more than once because it's, it's such a significant passage on the, on the topic of understanding ourselves, and that is Romans chapter one. This should be familiar to you, and if it's not, let's make it so. So here we are in chapter 1, and Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
In chapter 2, he picks up on this more carefully again. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What is he saying about this suppression of knowledge or suppression of truth? And this thing he says, this basic moral awareness He says to fellow Jews, look around the globe. You know, the the four of us who are in India, I promise you, have discovered easily, as we would discover anywhere we go, even among vast populations of people who, depending on where they are, have little or no Christian understanding of things. They have the same basic moral awareness that all people have. They know it's wrong to steal stuff that ain't theirs. They know it's wrong to be cruel to people. They know they shouldn't dishonor the people who have sacrificed for them. Basic things. They know they can't just take a human life because they want to. They have basic moral awareness. Paul reminds the reader of this, even talking to Jews, saying people who have have zero background knowledge in all the laws that Yahweh gave to his people, they still somehow understand most of what's in the Ten Commandments, having never read the Ten Commandments. It's as if they didn't necessarily have to see thou shalt not steal to know thou shalt not steal. How? How do they know that? Because, he says, They're made in the same image, and and it has been put inside of them. It has been sort of stamped or carved into their moral psyche. Basic, basic things. Does that mean that they obey all of those moral principles in a faithful way? It does not. This is is the cliff note version of, of the view of man that we hold. It seems by all accounts and by all experience to be a true view of man. That we know what is right in the basic sense, but we cannot and we do not faithfully obey it. Because of that, what's the result? Guilt is the result. Guilt. Knowing how we should be and knowing that we're not like that breeds a sense of guilt. And people deal with guilt in all kinds of ways, in all sorts of evasive ways, in all sorts of creative ways, with a lot of destructive, self-destructive maneuvers. See, we're clever and we concoct all sorts of games that we play in our mind to try to help out, to try to alleviate the sense of guilt that we have about things. This is just what people are. We feel a sense of guilt. Paul says, the conscience bears witness to the truth. So something inside you preaches to you, even if you don't like to hear it. It says, man, that was wrong. You know you shouldn't do that. This happens to all people all the time. 
And it convicts us. And sometimes it downright just condemns us. But do we like that? Who likes that? Nobody likes that. So internally, privately, almost subconsciously sometimes, we are convicting ourselves of the things we know to be wrong, and we're trying to cope with the guilt that brings about. And Paul says we suppress the truth. So this is one of our things we do. We are knowledge suppressors. There are things that deep down we kind of know, we can't help but know them, but we wish we didn't, and we'd like to not know them. So we sometimes pretend we don't. We pretend we never did. This is just denial. These are just games we play so that we can ignore some obvious things, to look away from them, to sort of self-propagandize. You tell yourself, it's okay, it's okay, it's all right. I'm entitled, I had an excuse, I have a reason, see? It's all right. Yeah, welcome to us. And so we do this, why? We do this for self-justification. Justification seems like that's a doctrinal term I've heard. How about you? By the way, justification, a term Paul uses in the same letter, doesn't he? Justification by faith. We're looking to get justified. We're wanting to be justified. Deep down, the human heart longs to be justified, to be put right, to have the guilt alleviated, to be free of it, to not be shackled by all those bad feelings and, the, and that stuff that sort of always crushes your self-awareness, uh, your, your identity, your view of yourself. How can I be justified? So we justify ourselves. The first man and woman, what did they do? They realized their guilt, and what did they do about it? They tried the first cover-up. You know, but did it work? It does not work. We cannot achieve this justification we seek. God can achieve and has achieved justification. And it comes by faith, not by any cloak we can knit to hide ourselves behind. That will not work. So why am I getting into all this theology here? Because this has to do with some of the games we play about issues we face when we wonder why do people do the things they do? And why do people believe the things they believe? And sometimes they look a little bit crazy. And sometimes it looks like you, you would have to have played some games on your own mind. You have to play some tricks on yourself to get yourself to believe certain things. And indeed, that is what people do. And I'm not trying to make it out as though all of them do it and we never do it. We have all done it and we are still tempted to do it. And so one of the games we play is language games. Language games. And you can usually tell that you're doing this when you work extra hard to rename things. They call it a, a euphemism. We use euphemisms. Sometimes we use them for politeness. Right? Politeness. Because we don't want to say something in its most graphic, blunt terms. We'll say a nicer version of it. It's okay. That, that by the way, that's okay sometimes. You know, if, if somebody just lost a parent, let's say, you're going to probably say, I'm sorry that you lost that person, that person passed on. These are euphemisms for death, because death can be just a frank, blunt thing. In reality, it is, and we, and we are all moving toward that 
the, our own appointment. But we use euphemisms. It's okay sometimes. However, we can sometimes use this as a game to play in order to take the edge off of things that otherwise wouldn't sound so good. And a lot of times, in mass, the mob, the group thing, will sometimes take on language to sort of hide or cover realities. And so, for example, just thinking about what certain regimes might do in this sense, we, we study and we read about a thing that we call the Holocaust. Is Holocaust a positive word? Of course not. It's about as negative a word as you could think of. We call it that because we're saying this accurately describes these events. Holocaust, bad word. Let me ask you, do you think that the leaders of the Third Reich called this plan and called this vast, well-organized, carefully planned, well-funded, um, what should we say, policy, <laughs> do you think they called it a holocaust when they unveiled it and as they and on their documents and as they promoted to try to get people to get on board, do you think they, was it on any posters? The holocaust. No. They called it the final solution. I don't know about you, but solutions are good. Solution is a positive word. I like solutions. You got problems? You want solutions. The final solution. How positive that sounds. You see, that's just one example of what we do. That's a language game. And it's a surefire sign that something for which people would normally feel guilty is kind of being covered over with a positive word. Well, now let's bring it a little closer to home. Again, the question, why, why do so many people not see this issue the way we see it? Let me throw some terms at you and tell me if they sound okay to you. Your right to choose. I like that. Generally speaking, I like that. I want my rights to choose. I don't want somebody bossing me around telling me what I can or can't do. Positive, right? Right to choose. Bodily autonomy. The fact that I can sort of, I can kind of choose to eat the meals I want to eat. I can go do what I want to do. You know, I don't have somebody standing over me telling me, eat that, do that, drink that. You have to be like that. For certain periods in life, sometimes people have that experience. Some of you are in the military. <laughs> There are periods when somebody is telling you all that. But generally speaking, you like bodily autonomy, don't you? Generally, you probably like something like, here's another good phrase, access to health care. Do you like access to health care? Yeah, some of you have been through some health care procedures very recently. It's good that you had access to that. That helped you. That's good. That's a positive thing. Or reproductive rights or family planning. You want somebody to come and say, you are allowed to have 2.6 kids, no more, no less. No, you want to make your own decisions about this. All the terms I just read to you are, by anyone's account, positive terms. Positive terms. But of course, they are all used for this thing we are talking about. And that's just one clue 
of how people can see it differently. Language. But let's be, let's be as honest as possible here. Despite all those positive terms, we have to ultimately get down to truth. We can't just keep suppressing truth, even by language. We have to get down to truth. We have to call things what they are, and so we have to define things accurately. So I want to show you a definition, and I want to show you a fundamental moral principle. Now, notice. Notice so far, just on these, on this slide, I'm not even making necessarily a moral claim about abortion. We're just laying the, the groundwork to understand it accurately. You know, one of the, you know one of the most significant things you can possess and display in the world today? Just moral clarity. Before you even get to your stance and your convictions and the arguments you would make, just clarity. Confusion is an enemy. In fact, the enemy of mankind peddles he, he traffics in confusion. He loves it. He makes his hay there. He makes all of his money in confusion. That's his, that's his realm. He can get a lot done where there's confusion. So clarity. So let's simply define what this actual what the, what the act is that is that we're talking about here. What is abortion? How do, what's the simplest way to define it? It is simply this. It is the killing of a human being before birth. The killing of a human being in utero, before it has been born. Now this, of course, is quite indisputable, this definition. It would, it would be somewhat ludicrous if we just think about it for a moment to deny this definition. Whatever, Wherever people stand, they at least have to agree on what we're talking about here. They might want to look away. They may want to say, ah, I don't want to talk about that. I don't like the sound of that. But we have to face it. This is what this is. Just think about the components of the definition. Is it human? Well, it's, it is of the species Homo sapiens. It's not. Human beings conceive and give birth to human beings. So yes, it is human. But is it a human being? Is it a distinct being? As opposed to, say, a part or an organ. Now, I took anatomy in school. I suppose many of you took anatomy in school. You had to learn all of those organs and systems, and it's fairly complicated. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a very complex being. It's, it's a lot to learn, right down to the nitties and the gritties. But I remember learning all of the anatomy and all the complication, all the parts. And even, even the female anatomy, you know, liver and kidneys and all the bones and all every muscle. I never remember baby as a, one of the organs or part of the female anatomy. It is not. No, this is a distinct being. It's a distinct being. Um, so, just, again, just the definition. Are we talking about a human? Yes. Are we talking about a distinct being? Yes. Are we talking about a killing? Well, yes. That's what happens. That being is killed. It is intentionally killed. Not, that is, it's not, the killing isn't a byproduct 
or an accidental uh, side event. It is, it's not just, um, what, what, what do we say, collateral damage? <laughs> no. The act, the procedure, aims directly at, intends to, and accomplishes the killing of that being. So that's what this is. That is the definition. And so now, to the fundamental moral principle. This is, this is, I would argue this is the first principle of all moral systems, of any body of morality, of any system of ethics. This would be the first moral principle. would have to do with human life and the taking of it. And so, the principle being, to take the life of a human being, to kill a human being, requires serious moral justification. Serious moral justification. In other words, if you're going to take the life of a human being, you're going to need really good reasons. Because this is just no small thing. If you decide that you're going to hit the Taco Bell drive through after this service, you don't need very much reason to justify that act. Frankly, probably none of us care. You know, go for it. Have at it. You do you. Make a run for the border. You don't See, that's not that is not an act that requires serious moral justification. But to end the life of a human being, that's going to take some Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not murder. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, the King James says thou shalt not kill. Ah, this is one of those places where the King James translators in the 17th century took it for granted that the reader would understand something that, frankly, uh, most other translations later did not take that for granted. So they translated it murder. Now the Hebrew scholars and the tradition of the Jews throughout was always that this ought to be, this is not against killing per se, as if there would never be a justification, but it's against murder. What is murder? Murder is wrongful killing. Murder is killing that is morally unjustified. Now, by the way, if we knew no Hebrew and if we knew no history of the Jews and Jewish interpretation, if we knew none of that, you know how we could still know that that's what that commandment means? That it doesn't just mean any killing? Because the same Torah, the same law, advocates for and commands the killing of some people at some times. Certain crimes merited for the sake of justice the taking of a life. Yahweh sent into battle hosts. And in battles, people get killed. And so, that's what, that, is a, that is the command. Clear as, clear as anything. That's why you say, that's why you didn't, that's why the moral first principle isn't you, there is never a circumstance where you may take a lie. We could find a few people that might argue that, by the way. There are those who say you. There's never a justification, for example, for capital punishment. There are some who say there's never a justification for any kind of war, complete pacifist. There are some who say you, you may not even, self-defense would even be wrong. That's a, that's a small minority view. Small minority view. Biblically speaking, 
is an issue of justification. There are precious few situations or scenarios where the intentional taking of a life can be morally justified. Precious few. And it really matters what the justification is. And so now our question has to be, given that, that what abortion is, in its simplest definition, is the taking of the life of a distinct human being, and given that to do that requires serious moral justification, now we must ask, what can be the justification for this act? Can it be justified? And in that sense, we have to now consider what are the main reasons why it happens today. I'm only going to discuss the first one this morning and the next three next week. Now, you may look at that list and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't see, I don't see saving the life of the mother on your list of reasons. Well, the reason for this has to do with sheer numbers or statistics. I am giving you what the primary reasons are why this, why this procedure takes place. And that one on a pie chart is a sliver that would look like a line okay, on a pie chart. Because the percentage of these procedures that take place to save a life are so very, very, very minute. So if we're just doing a top four, it's going to be these reasons why this tends to happen. Why, globally speaking, why this procedure takes place by them among, and I'm talking about among the millions upon millions of occasions where this happens. It is these reasons. Could any of these justify that? Well, let's just examine here with the time we have left just the one, just the first one. The one that I'm calling sex selection abortion. Now, in some places in the world, this has become, over the last decade or so, beyond the decade really, quite an epidemic. Sex-selective abortions in which overwhelmingly girls are killed. It's happened in a lot of countries. In China and India, they've been notable for it. China and India, of course, the most populous nations on the planet. And they have had policies. China made it legal for a long time. One child policy. One child. And in other places, it's simply uh, social pressure. In parts of India, it may not even be proscribed in the law per se, but there is a social um, unwritten law that boys are to be preferred for economic, financial, and social standing reasons such that girls are aborted at high Rates. A recent estimate said that in China there are some 160 million missing girls. Some 160 million, what they call this, quote, that's in quotes, missing girls. And a number of articles have, have been published over the years to try to show people this. I've got just one of them I can show you that I, I copied and pasted here. Um, an article that describes it, the war against girls. There are others uh, that, I, that I didn't put up here. So there was um, a writer named Anna Higgins wrote for the Lozier Institute an article called Sex Selection, the Real War on Women. And in that, uh, she says that they have found that this is happening in the U.S. in certain immigrant communities under the umbrella of choice. Some, some of these communities are saying that 
that the abortion laws that we have and the sort of the the push in many cities to to defend that at all costs, they have found safe harbor to practice sex selective abortion in the U.S. Even though polls in the U.S. show overwhelming opposition to it, every time they poll people, what do you think about this? They don't like it at all. The overwhelming number of citizens in the U.S. when they're asked about this practice of aborting girls because you like boys better, they're they're not for it at all. They will they will call it things like here are all these are terms I've seen prenatal sex discrimination or gender side or fetal misogyny terms like that they don't like it. So if the, if the citizens don't like it, maybe we can at least stop that kind, right? Well, in 2012, Congress debated what they called the Prenatal Non-Discrimination Act, or PRINDA. The Prenatal Non-Discrimination Act. This was supposed to make sex-selective abortions illegal. They said, well, the public strongly supports this. We should probably do this. That act failed to pass. Failed to pass. Why did it fail to pass? Because enough of them said that this this threatens the sacred right of abortion. And so, for example, one representative, Jim McDermott, Democrat of Washington, he called this act, Prinda, quote, just another intrusion into a woman's right to choose. And it failed. So even when the public essentially says that we don't like that practice, sex-selective abortions, we're against that, we still can't make any laws against it because that's frankly just how sacred this right is to some people. Can't even do that. Well, interesting by comparison now. Several years ago, South Korea started to see this trend, South Korea. Now, you probably know that South Korea is the most Christianized of the Asian countries. That is to say, the church has a stronger influence. Christian thinking, Christian churches, has a stronger influence in South Korea than any other Asian country. So there are a great number of Christian believers there in fact, I think what the largest is the largest Protestant church still in Seoul that meets sort of every one single congregation meeting weekly in Seoul. And it's interesting that when they saw this trend in South Korea, there was a major public reaction to it. And they got something done there because of that. And so listen to this. This was so Nicholas Eberstadt in the New Atlantis wrote about this. In an article called The Global War Against Baby Girls. He talked about what happened in South Korea. And he said that the movement now that stopped it there, he said it was sparked, and I'm quoting now, quote, by the spontaneous and largely uncoordinated congealing of a mass movement for honoring, protecting, and prizing daughters. In effect, this movement drawing largely on the faith-based community, sparked a national conversation of conscience about the practice of female feticide, 
This conversation was instrumental in stigmatizing the practice, not altogether unlike the way in which nationwide conversations of conscience helped to stigmatize international slave trading in other countries in former times. He draws a direct parallel. You see what he's saying there. Think about those verses in Romans now. So in South Korea, they look and they see this is happening. And informed with a Christian conscience, they say, this ought not be, brothers. We cannot have this. This is wrong. And so, did they do violence? No. They began to prick the consciences of those around them. As this writer says, a, a national conversation of conscience. They, they woke up a sleeping voice. They, they got people to stop suppressing, to stop looking away, to stop ignoring. And they got them to see what they should see. They got them to admit what they already knew, which is this shouldn't happen. That's how it worked. Just like it worked in other times with other atrocities. Should the church have just kept quiet about the slave trade once upon a time? Should they have said, well, you know, church and state and everything, and we should just be quiet. We shouldn't go around pushing our morality out in the public square. No, they said, that's wrong. We're going to say it's wrong. Deep down, people know it's wrong. So we're not going to tell them something foreign and bizarre that they don't already know. We're going to remind them and wake them up to something that they already know, but they just have been engaged in trying to forget or not remember or not think about because they have been suppressing this truth, because they've been suppressing this knowledge because they don't want to know it. And because they did that, they, awoke, they awakened the conscience of people, and that stopped. And how many people then did not suffer anymore? And in the same way, and in the same way, how many then, in South Korea, how many girls are enjoying life today in families and in school and living their lives because they were not killed because of this? This is why the church focuses on this. And so I urge us all then, clarity, got to know what's, you know, if, if we just run out of the building half cocked, we just go out into society. Sort of with our, if we're as confused as other people, we're just, we're just confused in a Christian way. And we go out there and say a bunch of confused stuff, even though we're against it. And they, and, and other people say a lot of confused stuff and they're for it. That doesn't do anything. That just makes, that just causes war. Oh yeah, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're terrible. Oh yeah, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're terrible. I hate you, oh I hate you. Oh yeah, well, I'm going to vote against your way. I'm going to vote against your way of thinking. No clarity there. Just almost like this is just this is just children in the marketplaces. In the marketplace, as Jesus described it, right? We want what we want. No, no, the church. Step one, just to understand this and to be able to communicate it in clear terms. In clear terms. Why do missionaries learn the language when they go to places? Well, because what are they going to do if they don't learn the language? Stand around and pantomime the whole thing? No, you learn so you can communicate clearly. So we learn, we, we study this, we understand this. We see it through Christian eyes. We see it from a biblical standpoint. We see it like disciples should see it, in clear terms, in understandable terms, in terms that we can clearly communicate, in a civil and peaceful way, but, but help people see it. 
to awaken the conscience, to open the eyes, to help them to see things that they don't, they don't want to see because they're painful to see. Even though, look, in some cases this may be in context where people are affected personally by this. But I think we have enough testimonies of women, by the way, who will say, women who had abortions, who will say, look, it's painful to think about it, but I'd rather think about it clearly than just you know, keep repressing it. Even every, every psychologist in the world advocates that people deal with things and work through them as opposed to bury them, hide them, forget them, never think about them. I don't, know, I don't think there's a secular psychologist on earth that says, yeah, that's the way you cope with stuff. No, that's unhealthy. So even when it's personal, the best thing is to deal with it. Because guess what? Our gospel, you know, Paul says, my gospel says that there is judgment in the end, but that's not, that wasn't the totality of his gospel, that's part of his gospel. That's part of our gospel. There is judgment in the end. But part of our gospel says to people who have, who have sinned in all ways, including this one, that you can be justified because that's a ministry right there. You think deaconess, pregnancy, and adoption doesn't also do that ministry? You don't think that they also have to counsel women who say, I had this procedure and I feel terrible. What's my solution to that? How can I be justified with that on my conscience? Well, there is one way. Thanks be to God. We, we have a message for them. So it's forgiveness and it's clean slate. 